This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Good morning. Welcome to Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as our campuses join with us over in Appleton and Stevens Point. All the people watch us on television and around the world on the internet. Uh, let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are and what we believe here at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you with us here this morning at Celebration Church. Good to see people in church. <laughs> Last few Sundays have been a little brutal uh, with all the storms and the ice and everything. Also glad to see there was no storm coming on Saturday night and it finally cut us a break. Uh, and as uh, you can well imagine, uh, you know, we've taken quite the financial hit because we've missed several Sundays of very small crowds, and, and we hope that you will be as generous as you possibly can today, above and beyond, if you will, to uh, step up to the challenge and help us to kind of climb out of the uh, tight situation that we're in. And not just us, obviously, churches all around Wisconsin have been getting hammered uh, <clears throat> in these situations, so please be generous today. We're doing a series about forgiveness. The scripture you saw on the screen there is from Proverbs. It says, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Do you overlook offenses or do you focus on the offenses trying to straighten them out? Uh, good question. Now, at Celebration, our uh, desire is to help people to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. Now, we're kind of focusing on the area of finding freedom because if you are holding bitterness and unforgiveness against someone else, it will put you in a cage of your own making. It will rob you of your true joy and your true freedom when you stay angry and bitter at someone else. And the irony is, when you're angry and bitter at someone else, it doesn't do anything to them. <laughs> they pretty much don't care. It's something you're doing to yourself. Now, this morning, I've entitled my message, Beware the Love of Righteousness. That sounds a little strange, because we are supposed to love righteousness, but there's a version of loving righteousness that turns you from a giving, kind person into a very critical, pharisaical-type Christian, and you want to avoid that at all costs. The biggest way you can tell the difference is when you're focusing on righteousness in your own life, that's good. When you start focusing on what's right or wrong in other people's lives, that 
is bad. Now we're reading from this morning, we're going to start in Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Now this is one of the final great events in the Old Testament uh, before Jesus comes. You'd never tell that the way the Bible is laid out. It's not in order. It's all jacked up. I don't know who decided this, but, and I want the thing, I have no idea. You take the Old Testament in particular and you read it from beginning to end, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense to anybody because it's all out of order. It's all jacked up. Uh, I would actually encourage, if you really want to understand the Bible, get a chronological Bible. It's still the Bible. What they do is just take it and put it actually in the order of the events as they occur. Uh, oh, now it starts making a lot of sense because this final event of the Old Testament is stuck in the middle of the Old Testament and everything's all out of order. But this is one of the final things. Now what happens is, you know, God sends Moses, gets the people out of Egypt, gives them the law of Moses that the rules are supposed to obey, starting with the Ten Commandments. They eventually go into the Promised Land. They conquer the Promised Land. All the promises that God gave them are fulfilled. And now they start doing everything wrong. And they can't seem to get anything right. And the bulk of the Old Testament is really just reading about how these people would get themselves in a mess because they would disobey God. And then he would send someone to help them. And they'd come out of it. And then they'd disobey God. And he'd send someone to get out. That's where you get Samson and all these different people that come along. And then the kings come along. And you read... First and second kings, there's a whole bunch of reading, and all it is is just showing you how one guy messed up, and the next guy messed up, and the next guy messed up, and God kept warning him, you better stop it, you better stop it, I'm going to kick your butt, I'm going to bring fire down in your heads, people are going to die, and about halfway through the book, I'm like, just kill them already, it takes forever, <laughs> just centuries, which is good news for all you, you think God is impatient with you, you are delusional, there's nothing you're doing that's freaking God out looking at you going, oh, myself, you know. He's five. He's very, very patient. You doubt that, just read First and Second Kings. And it goes on and on, and he keeps warning him, and he keeps warning him, and he keeps it. And finally, he has had it up to here after centuries of this horrible behavior, and he brings the hammer, and the Babylonians come in, kill all kinds of people, destroy the city, and takes the rest of them and drags them off into Babylonian captivity. And they're there for decades, some 70 plus years, whatever it is. And uh, finally, at the end of that, they finally get come to their senses, crying out to God. God brings them back and they start to rebuild the city. And this is where we run into Nehemiah. Nehemiah, God has put on his heart to rebuild the walls around the city as they're reconstructing the city of Jerusalem. And this whole Babylonian captivity, even though that it wasn't that long, has a major impact on them. Up until this time, they can't stop themselves. They are constantly getting involved in idol worship and worshiping other gods. And I mean, just one thing after another. After this, it stops. There's no more record of them struggling with this after that captivity. So this is like 400 years before Jesus comes. They finally get it together. And there's 400 years of kind of quiet. And then Jesus comes and all of that, what we're experiencing today is happening. So anyway, at the last chapter of this book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah grabs all the people together and they start reading from the law of Moses. And a lot of them had never heard it because they'd been so far from God. And as they're reading it, they're stunned at how they have made so many mistakes and they start to correct things. And Nehemiah starts to correct things. He gets rather intense about it, actually. Let's read a little bit from this uh, chapter 13. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people 
And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam. That's the guy that had the donkey talk to him. Balaam was supposed to bring curses down on them, but God turned the curses into blessing. When the people heard this, they got the point. They excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. See, they were supposed to stay separate. And by this time, the only ones who really get it is from the tribe of Judah. Judah, hence you get the word Jews. Uh, Israel, the rest of the other tribes, all got so intermarried and stuff like that, they eventually became the Samaritans. We read about the Samaritans, the good Samaritans, when Jesus comes. These guys, they basically consider them half-breeds because they, they never got it right. But Judah finally got it right. Jesus came from this tribe, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Bible says. Anyway, so they realized, oh man, we're not supposed to be doing that. So they straighten up. Now before this, Elisha, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, who was a real squirrel, naughty guy. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings. So the, the room for these offerings, this guy came and he was in cahoots with this bad guy. So he clears it out and gives this guy basically an office or an apartment there, which is completely wrong. They're not supposed to do this. Uh, verse 6, while all this is going on, I was in Jerusalem. I didn't know what was going on. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I'd returned to the king. So I was out of town. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. And here I learned about this evil thing that they had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased. I threw out all of Tobiah's junk, <laughs> threw it out of the room. And I gave orders to purify the rooms. And then I went and put back in the equipment of the house of God, along with the offerings, great offerings and incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to, assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. The Levites that are supposed to be serving God in the temple and the musicians playing for the services had gone back to their own fields. Why? Because they weren't paying them anymore. Why aren't you paying these guys? They're supposed to be here. Well, it's paying me. I got to go back. So they got to go back and work in the fields. So he's mad about this and encourages the people to start bringing uh, the offerings and stuff so they can continue to worship God. So I rebuked the officials. I said, why is the house of God neglected? And I called them together and stationed them at their posts. And all Judah now are bringing the tithes of grain. They're bringing these offerings, wine, olive oil, into the storerooms. And I put a bunch of guys here that I can't read their names. I don't know how to pronounce them. Anyway, I put all these guys in charge and made them responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. The money's coming in. Now they're paying the bills, paying these guys. Uh, and then he cries out to God, remember me for this, O God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Now, in those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in grain, loading it on donkey, donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. Anyway, he gets all over them for violating the Sabbath. Um, they say that, you know, Christians' Sabbath is Sunday and stuff, but it's really not a Sabbath like their Sabbath. The, the New Testament doesn't really put a big emphasis on even the Sabbath. Some disagree with that, like some of the Adventists definitely disagree with it. They're great Christian people, and they're still very strict about the Sabbath. By and large, in the New Testament, it doesn't talk much about it. If anything, it talks the other way. Anyway, in the Old Testament, it's a big stinking deal. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. It's one of God's things that God had told them in the Old Testament. So, um, in verse 17, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath? 
Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on this city? Now look at around. Everything's a disaster. The Babylonians came and they destroyed everything. Drug us off into captivity. It's a complete disaster because we were consistently desecrating the Sabbath and breaking all of God's rules. Everything Moses said, they just disagreed, uh, disobeyed, worshiped other gods. So, guys, we got to straighten this out. Um, let me see. Let's jump down to verse 23. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah uh, who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. These are the countries surrounding them who had false gods and all these weird religions and Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or language of one of the other peoples and didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. And he's furious about it because it's another major violation that had got him in trouble with God. So I rebuked them and I called curses down on them and I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair. Why would a man of God do that? I don't know. I have days I feel like doing the same. And I made them take an oath in God's name and say, you're not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons. And he basically goes into this whole thing. That's what got Solomon in trouble. And Solomon wound up with a thousand women and then became very depressed. I wonder why. <laughs> Seriously, a thousand. Well, how would you deal with a thousand women, wives and concubines? I mean, good night. And then he writes Ecclesiastes and he's just totally depressed through the whole book. The whole point of Ecclesiastes, he says, life is hard, then you die. This is only life sucks. This is awful. Well, yeah, thousand women, I'd be depressed too. So anyway, he gets on about all this stuff. So he basically just comes in and he's hammering them. You got to start doing things right and from a good perspective because they were constantly sitting against God. God had kept warning them. Now from here on out, they get it. I don't know why now, but for some reason now, that period of time in Jewish history was, had a dramatic impact on them. And the idol worship stopped and all this stuff stopped. The uh, Samaritans were still doing things wrong, but they're, they're on their own thing. But the, the, the tribe of Judah, which became the Jews, uh, got it right. And from that came the Messiah 400 years later. But something happens along the way. They start out wanting to do things right to please God. But then they fell in love with doing things right. And they became pinheads about every little thing. Got to do things right. And these became the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day that Jesus had to deal with when he came. Let's pick that up. In Matthew, the 12th chapter. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. As they're walking along, picking now, they're not supposed to do this. Say, well, why? The law of Moses was really strict. Why Christians get obsessed sometimes with the Old Testament, want to start following the rules of the Old Testament? Y'all crazy. That's, you know, because uh, James wrote, if you're going to follow the law, you can't just pick a piece of it. You got to do the whole thing. Trust me, you don't want to do the whole thing. This is really strict, 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 strict. And it was against the rules. You don't do that. They knew that. The religious leaders knew it. And then the disciples knew it. They're doing it anyway. So these people who really get thinking about things doing right, they saw this. And when they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And it was unlawful. They weren't supposed to do that. 
And then Jesus answered them. He says, well, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? So David and his band of men, they're running from Saul for their lives. <laughs> Life was hard for them during that time. These are these psalms when you read David say, oh, I cried out unto the Lord. Oh, God, help me. That was his life when he's running for his life. It was awful. Uh, and then he finally eventually became the king and everything turned around. But uh, so he's right. So they're hungry. And what they do is they, he entered the house of God. This is Jesus talking. And he and his companions ate the consecrated bread. You don't eat the consecrated bread. It's consecrated. The closest analogy, especially if you have a Roman Catholic background, it would be like you're really hungry and you walk up to the altar, you pop it open and you start eating wafers. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're not supposed to do that, all right? Same kind of thing. They weren't supposed to do it. What they were doing was wrong. But God never had any problem with it, never rebuked David for it. Jesus is talking about it. Hey, you remember when David did that? And they all knew, yeah, I don't know. how did he get away with that? He says, or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? Why do they desecrate? Because they're working. You're not supposed to be working. It's like you come to church, all the pastors are working, all the people. There have been people here for hours before any of y'all showed up. They're coming in early. They're getting everything ready and communion, getting things ready for the kids and stuff. There's a whole bunch of people doing a whole bunch of work around here. Well, I suppose they're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Well, again, he says, look, they, they work. They're not supposed to work, but somehow that's okay. So the question is this. Why were those instances okay, even though they broke the law? Well, it was the context. In fact, Jesus goes on and said, you know, because I'm here, someone is greater than Solomon or the temple is here. It's okay for them to pick grains of, of wheat. And the context of David trying to save his life and, and stuff. So context, is what is the context of the actions? But you see, when you are a lover of righteousness, and I'm talking about a pinhead lover of righteousness, a picky Pharisee, you don't care about context because there's never any context. They only see in black and white, right and wrong. That's it. And you don't break the law. You're not ever supposed to break the law. It says in the Bible, obey the laws of the land. Well, yeah, we're supposed to obey the laws of the land, but there are exceptions. It's particularly in context. Here's an example. In Samuel, Samuel was a prophet. He was the first one to anoint the first king of Israel, Saul. Well, Saul goes off the rails, and God says, I've had it with Saul, with, with uh, Saul. And Samuel gets all bummed out about it. And we read about it. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? Quit whining since I've rejected him as king over Israel. Now go fill your horn with oil and get on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. This is David. David is anointed king way early when he's still a kid before he ever becomes king. Decades before he becomes king. All those things that happen in the middle. But he was anointed as king way early on. Really fascinating thing. I don't know what David thought as a kid. I don't know if he thought much of anything. You know, he probably didn't even know what was going on. But anyway, what God is telling Samuel to do is against the law. This is an insurrection. This is us usurping the governing authority of the day. It is punishable by death. 
One of the most severe crimes even to this day in countries is if you rebel against your own country. Nobody looks very favorably on this. And that's what he's doing. He tells him, go. I've had it with Saul. We're going to bring in a new king. This is a major, major violation. But we're never supposed to break the laws. Well, generally speaking, but again, there's don't be a pinhead. So he does this. And then Samuel says, how am I going to do this? Saul hears about it. He's going to kill me. Why? It's against the law. And we're not talking going 25 in a 50-mile-an-hour zone. You're not going to get a ticket. They're going to kill you. This is punishable by death. This is one of the worst things you could do in any country or under any king or governing thing is to rebel against the authority. He said, how am I going to do that? Saul, he's going to kill me. And then the Lord tells him this. Well, just take a heifer. Go along and just tell people I've uh, come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, to a pinhead, right and wrong person, that's, that, that's a white lie. Listen to me. There's no such thing as a white lie. You either lie or you don't. Okay? There's not a good lie. We call it a white lie. Well, we're not really telling the whole story. You don't always have to tell people the whole story. Are you listening to me? Escuchame. You don't need to know the whole story about everybody else's life. Stuff it, for heaven's sakes. Don't be a pinhead picking at every little thing. So he says, hey, where are you going? He says, I'm just going to go sacrifice. And he's dragging his cow along. Well, did he sacrifice? Yeah, but that's not why he went. And God told him to say that. It's like when we, uh, in, the, in the 70s, when the, or still the Iron Curtain was up, the Soviet Union was still intact, and, you know, they had control of all of the Eastern Europe, European countries, and it was called the Iron Curtain. You couldn't get in, or if you could get in, you know, they were very strict. And one of the things they wouldn't allow is for you to promote Christianity and give out Bibles and that kind of thing. Well, people did. We did, Joe and I did, back in the day with a bunch of people. We'd go in and we'd load up these buses with tracts and gospel materials and Bibles and stuff, and we'd go through the thing, and they'd say, do you have anything to declare? And, nope, we ain't got nothing to say. <laughs> and there were Christians who were upset at that. That's, that's wrong! You're supposed to obey the rules! These are the lovers of righteousness. The little pinheads. They can't think outside the box. Everything's got to be just black and white all the time, and they never understand the context of some of these laws. There's some laws you just ignore, for heaven's sakes, especially when they go directly against God's word. <sighs> and we go, we smuggle Bibles and stuff like that. Remember the first time we went in? <laughs> we were all nervous as cats <laughs> because we're coming to the, up to the border, and we all look guilty of sin. I mean, you just, our faces were just guilt. Man, we need to lighten up a little bit. So I got, got the banjo out. And did you get your guitar too? I don't know. We started singing. You get a line, I'll get a bowl, honey. You get a line, I'll get a bowl, babe. You get a line, I'll go a bowl. We'll go fishing to crawl that hole, honey, baby. So we're all clapping and singing. And we're all, now everybody's happy and stuff. We come up to the border. The border guard jumps on the bus. We're still singing. He dances all the way down the aisles like this. And then he dances back out and said, okay, you guys can go. And that was it. That was our heifer diversion. (laughs) 
We read more about Jesus' encounters with these pinheads. Going from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. We don't know if it, why it was shriveled. Was it shriveled from, from a birth? Maybe it was in a horrible accident. You know, they didn't have emergency rooms back then. You know, your hand gets caught and cut. Something gets smashed. You pretty much got a smashed hand. And uh, that guy with the shriveled hand was there. And then looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, these religious pinheads said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, why are they asking this? Because their version of Sabbath was you're not supposed to expend any energy or to release any energy. Even to this day, very strict Judaism, and I was in Israel last year, and these people, you can't even turn on a light switch during the Sabbath because that's releasing energy. And uh, when you're in the uh, hotels, you can't push a button in the elevator because that releases energy. So what they do is they program the elevators all day long during the Sabbath just to stop at every floor. People just walk in, they just don't touch nothing until they got to your floor. And they had to stop at every floor, and then you got out, and, you know, it took a long time. But, uh, which is kind of ridiculous, because there's energy going the whole time with the elevator. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but these are the rules. And, uh, you know, I got, I got to follow the rules. And they become very legalistic about things. So you can't heal on the Sabbath. That is a release of energy. And Jesus said to them, look, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit... Wouldn't you take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretches it out, and all of a sudden, it was completely restored, just like the other one. Now that had to be cool. All of a sudden, whoa, did you see that? Impressive. But look what the religious people did. Uh, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Seriously, your response to that miracle is you're going to kill Jesus. Well, yeah. Why? Because it's not right. It's not right. God, it's right. And that's against the rules. Whoa. Don't let your love of righteousness turn you into a Pharisee. This is what I'm trying to warn you. We're talking about forgiveness and grace. Don't let, and, and here's the thing. I wrote about this a couple of months ago and posted on, on uh, Facebook, but it's, the question is, why is it that older Christians are the ones who always get mad leave churches? It's not the young ones. And I, I'm not talking about age. I'm talking about experience. And so you might, might be 75 and just coming to church for the first time forever, and, and your faith is relatively young. So when you first start coming to faith, you actually like everybody. You even like me. <laughs> and we all like everybody. This is great. But the more you go growing in your faith, you start learning about what is right and what is wrong. Unaware that that's for you to reflect on, not to take as a hammer to other people. And they get mature enough where they start knowing some of the rules. <laughs> And they get mad when one of the rules are not followed exactly according to their standard, and they become nasty, mean people. You know, there are 400,000 churches in America. 80% of them have 100 people in them or less. Do you know why? Because that's about how many people can get together without punching each other in the face. <laughs> without arguing about things. 
because they split and the church goes, a bunch of people leave, a bunch of people leave. Everybody experiences this. I've been talking to pastors, you know, I travel all around the country and the world, but these last few months, we travel around the country and talking to other pastors. And that's what I'm talking about. And say, we're doing a thing on forgiveness, trying to get people to get over offenses. He said, man, we all got that problem. We all got it. You know what happens? A church will grow so much and then people, something will happen, they'll get, a bunch of people get mad and leave. That's happened here ever since I got here. Been doing this for 12, 15 years. If, if everybody who comes to celebration stayed in celebration church, we'd be a church of over 5,000 people today. But we're not. Why? We grow, and then some of these people all of a sudden learning about what they think things ought to be done. If it's not done right, they get mad and leave. And then you grow some more, and people, and then the other ones mature, and they, ah, they get mad about leaving somebody else. Somebody does something. Somebody said something. You change the program. How dare you change that program? It's not right. One of the most crazy ones, I still experience frustration to this day, is when we quit having a choir. You would think the Antichrist took over. 400 people left this church because we quit having the choir on Sunday morning. Why would you get rid of the choir? Well, first of all, you listen to our music. This isn't choir music. You want to go, there's a lot of places you got to go to listen to choirs. It's like staking a round peg and trying to put it in a square hole. It just never quite worked. Besides that, they sucked. <laughs> well, I liked it. Yeah, because you don't know anything about music. I am a musician and I could only stand so much. I couldn't take it anymore. And there are other reasons beside that, but it's, it's, it's no big deal. So what? Serve God somewhere else, right? Do something else. No! Hundreds of people. <laughs> and to this day, I still shake my head. What in the world? And there's always something. Something somewhere where someone learned something wasn't quite done right. <laughs> and they got to leave. And the whole reason, one of the main reasons for this whole uh, series is we got to stop this. The reason why a lot of you aren't so mad is because you haven't grown up enough yet. <laughs> Don't learn about the Bible and then become a jerk. Because this church has a problem. I'm here. All right? And I'm going to do something, say something, act the way, say something, preach something that you're not going to like. And that religious spirit will jump on you. That's not right. <laughs> And with the choir, you know, it wasn't just I didn't like the choir. Oh, no, it gets amplified. He's evil. He's evil. He doesn't want the spirit of God in the church. Really? And it just, everything you hear, it gets, keeps amplified. Amplified pretty soon. I'm going to be worse than Jeffrey Dahmer, for heaven's sakes. The rumors that go around, just get crazier and crazier. <laughs> And they justify because it's right and I know it's right and I have knowledge from God and I have wisdom. Wisdom is knowing the difference between right and wrong. When you don't know what to do, you pray for wisdom because then you're aware of what's right to do, what's wrong to do. And people think that wisdom stands on its own two feet. doesn't matter how you feel about it. No. How you handle it has a dramatic impact. Let's read this in James. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first pure then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. True wisdom is surrounded by sweetness. But if you have an attacking, nasty, 
critical, bitter attitude. Your wisdom is no longer from God. Well, that's not true because it's truth is truth. No, no, no. Because James says in verse 15, such wisdom, quote, unquote. I love that they quote it. But you consider wisdom. When you're like that, your wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Whoa. The way you handle things, the way you handle the truth is critical on the, how you handle it. What kind of attitude that you have. If you're submissive and humble and respectful, it's one thing. Then truth stands. But you can take what is right, just like the Pharisees did, and turn it around and be critical and nasty, and it turns into something from the devil. And it needs to stop. We need to stop. Just relax. Well, Pastor, what would you do if you were in a church you didn't agree with everything? Man, I was in a church for almost 20 years. I didn't agree with anything. Oh, they're all crazy. Why didn't you leave? It was my church. Right? It was my church. These are my friends. Evangelicals. We got issues. We become Pharisees. You know, I, I love, like, more traditional churches, like, I love talking to Lutherans. I like Lutherans. I'll talk to a Lutheran and say, how's your church? Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, oh, it's terrible. We got the pastor. He's, he's boring. No, we're so looking forward to getting rid of him. And, and getting get the next guy, we think that change will happen next year. And I go, wow, how long has he been there? 30 years. <laughs> See, because it doesn't matter to them. It's their church. Do you understand? How do we get that kind of thinking? Keep everybody in ignorance so they don't know anything? We want you to grow. We want you to get smart. We want you to understand the scriptures. We're teaching. We want you to build wisdom. But don't let that wisdom become demonic because you get critical and mean and nasty and somebody says something and does something. And, and a lot of stuff we're even accused of doing, we never even did. Someone just left the church because you don't have youth group anymore on Wednesday nights. No, we still have it every Wednesday. Oh, really? I didn't know that. They just assume because we weren't doing the adult thing every Wednesday night that we canceled everything. We didn't cancel everything. And of course, then it's not that you're just changing things. It's your evil. They love you. They, look, I get it. My brother, I was talking to my brother Eddie about it. He says, Mark, because he's trying to talk me off the ledge. <laughs> don't jump, dude. Don't jump. It's not, I can't take it anymore. It's, 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 like, it's like they become teenagers. Right? Because when your children are little, they, they actually like you. And then they become possessed. <laughs> and turn into teenagers. And then you're the dumbest thing that ever walked the face of the earth. Eventually they pull out of it, thank God. Or you'd kill them all. But don't become a snotty spiritual teenager and get mean and nasty. Get mean and nasty, then you're missing the whole point. The problem is, no church is perfect, and you're going to find out. And I said a few weeks ago, if you find a perfect church, don't go, because then you're going to wreck it. <laughs> I got to shut up. Matthew, the 12th chapter. <laughs> I'm on a roll. <laughs> 
there's no game on. We can keep going. Anyway, there's a... God would never want us to interfere with the Packers. We know that. That's right and wrong right there. Jesus finally tells these pinheads in Matthew 12, he says, if you guys had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. What does that mean? Sacrifice is a good thing. The Bible encourages us to sacrifice. When you come, just being here for some of the people is a sacrifice. You can be doing something else. Giving money, serving, helping people, building a community of faith like we did. It takes some sacrifice. That's good. All that's good. But he says the most important thing is mercy. Don't just get caught up in what you do for God. I'm doing this for God. I do this for you. If you don't have mercy, if you don't view people through the lens of mercy, it's a correcting lens. You know what I'm saying? I wear corrective lenses. You know, without my lenses, y'all get kind of blurry. And I go, ah, you're not blurry. Mercy is a corrective lens. Without it, people are just blobs. Put on the lens. There's ah, mercy. It's a nice person. It's a human being. It's an imperfect soul. How about some compassion? How about some grace? I'm going to invite our ushers to come, get ready to serve communion at all the different campuses here as we bring this to a close. <laughs> the point of my message today, don't be harsh towards people. Show humility. Show kindness. Show mercy. Because if you don't show people mercy, then your version of religion is just garbage. Without mercy, none of this makes sense. We're here because we celebrate, as we're going to celebrate right now, the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He took what he did not deserve, that horrible punishment, so you and I could get what we don't deserve, which is forgiveness for everything wrong we've ever done. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. It's his grace. It's because he shows mercy. We're going to take communion together and we're going to reflect on the fact that his body was broken so that we could be whole. His blood was shed so we could have forgiveness of sins. We can experience mercy. And there's a, every church in the world is a place, I've said this before, every church in the world is a place of forgiven people. Sadly, very few churches are also filled with forgiving people. Let us make a determination in our heart, no matter what, I am going to be a forgiving person. I've received mercy. Let me show mercy to others. As we take communion, just reflect. The Bible says you're supposed to reflect as we take communion. Examine your heart. Where are you at today? You know, maybe this last week you did something you shouldn't have done, said something you shouldn't have said, or didn't do things you should have done. Kick the neighbor's dog, whatever. You know, there's a time to just say, oh, Lord, forgive me. Help me get stuff right. Help me walk in kindness. Help me to walk in mercy. And if you've never experienced Jesus in your life, we're going to pray together. And if you'll pray this prayer with us, you can start your first steps of faith today. Let's pray this prayer together. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God and that you love me so much. You went to the cross and you took my punishment. I ask you to forgive me of my sins, to show me mercy, and help me to show mercy to others. Amen.